You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey, hey, everyone. This is episode 75 with Dr. Judith Rabinor. Judy uh, is a legend. So if her name doesn't speak for herself, I'll share a bit about her. But come on, guys. She's amazing. Judy is a clinical psychologist. She's an author, a speaker, and consultant to the Renfrew. And she's a supervisor at CSAB, which is the Center for Study of Anorexia and Bulimia here in New York City. She's a therapist. She offers therapy for individuals and couples and families and groups. She's written a couple books. So she wrote the A Starving Madness, Tales of Hunger, Hope, and Healing. That was in 2002. Befriending Your Ex After Divorce, Making Life Better for You, Your Kids, and Yes, Your Ex. That was maybe 10 years ago, I think 2012. And the more recent one, The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. So Three huge topics in the eating disorder world. And what she has so beautifully done is married clinical work, analysis, consultation, all that stuff with writing. I think she actually runs writing workshops. Maybe she'll tell you about it later. Judy is incredibly talented, and I'm so excited to share our conversation about mothers and daughters. Now, this is a topic that is, oh my God, so, so loaded. If you are like loads of people who struggle with disordered eating or eating disorder, you are a woman with a mom. And as you know, that can often be extremely complicated. So Judy and I break down why that's complicated, how our relationship with our mom affects us in the past, more importantly, in the present, what to actually do about that, how to make change if it was less than ideal, and a little bonus at the end, How does all of that shift dramatically when the daughter becomes a mom herself? This interview is full of good stuff, and it's also just scratching the surface. So we're probably going to do a follow-up maybe in a few months. If you want updates on that, as always, join me in my newsletter. All those links are going to be there, how to find Judy, how to join the newsletter, all that stuff. But you'll be the first to know when part number two comes out. All right, let's go. Thank you so much for joining us today, Judy. I'm so excited to do this. I know that you've written so many books, articles. I mean, you're a legend. Can I say that? You're a legend. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Well, thank you for saying that. That makes me feel very good and a little nervous because no matter how many years we're in this field, there are always surprises, right? Of course. Yeah. And that's sort of what keeps us going. Yeah. Always surprises, right? Yeah. So we're talking, obviously, within the general context of eating disorders, that's the show, but specifically about relationships and even more specifically about mothers and daughters. So, you know, obviously eating disorders, or not maybe not obviously, but eating disorders affect women disproportionately. So we know that the mother-daughter relationship is going to be almost the hallmark of some people's treatment. So maybe if we can start with understanding a little bit more of the general sense of the the background information of why that's important and how that shapes who we are today. And then we can 
move into a little bit more practical later in the conversation. Okay. As we all know, there's no one reason a person develops an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And when I started out in this field, what we talked about is the cultural pressure on all women to be thinner than what their bodies would naturally gravitate towards, and that that was a pressure. And yet, all women breathe in the same air, and all women don't develop eating disorders. So... Mm -hmm. What's unique about the person who develops an eating disorder? What is going on? And that answer is, it depends, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Like I right now am working with somebody who I saw on and I've seen on and off for 20 years. And her daughter now has an eating disorder. And now we know something we didn't know 20, 30 years ago, that there's a genetic predisposition. There's a genetic predisposition, just like there's a genetic predisposition to alcohol. There are some people who they go and they have two drinks and they say two is enough. If they have three, no, they're not having another drink. They're not going to become alcoholics. But there are some people that there's no switch that flips. So we don't really understand what it is about the genetics. But we know it's true that if you have a first degree relative, a sister, a mother, and maybe even a cousin who had an eating disorder, you have more of a likelihood to develop an eating disorder. Anyway, but the psychological lens that makes a lot of sense to me is the lens of attachment. So if you live in the Western world, probably your mother was your primary caretaker. Yes, there are women who are out working and the husbands are the primary caregivers. And so all this applies to whoever the primary caregiver is. But I'm going to use the word mothers and daughters because that's what we mainly deal with in our practices. So what I want to say is our first lover, our first loves were our mothers and our first heartbreaks were our mothers. Our mothers were the first one who met our needs and they, our mothers were our first attachment object. And their goal was to keep us safe, secure, and healthy. And food is interwoven into the relationship between the primary caregiver and the tiny infant. Bowlby, who's the father of attachment theory, originally thought that attachment was about food, but later he revised his theories, and so have all the modern thinkers. And now we know that attachment is about somebody meeting your needs. So food is one way our early needs get met. Therefore, when our early needs needs are not really met appropriately, emotionally, or nutritionally, Food can get very wound up in the psychological, in the emotional relationship. Am I saying this clearly, Rachel? Yes. Let's maybe talk about in general for a second how attachment or I guess we're going to use the term, quote, insecure attachment would affect someone's development in general. And then we can attach it to food. What we know is about 80% 80 of people in the world get adequately attached to their mother. I'm using the mother as the primary caregiver. The mother doesn't have to be perfect. She just has to be good enough. That's a phrase that I think most mothers love. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she just has to be good enough. So when a person's needs for safety and security are met, they're going to grow their cognitive and their emotional and their psychological processes are all going to develop. When a child is insecure, that's a secure attachment. But when the mothering person or the parenting person, the caregiving person is not 
attuned enough, is not feeding that child when the child is hungry, holding that child when the child needs to be held, helping that child fall asleep when they need sleep. The child doesn't develop the ability to soothe themselves and they develop an insecure attachment to the mother and they're waiting always for somebody else to do it for them. And these are the kids who are most vulnerable to trying to soothe and nourish and nurture themselves with food. So just to clarify, you're saying that if somebody has some sort of insecure attachment, I'm using these buzzwords that that Mm -hmm. originally have been only clinical terms, but people hear them and use them all the time, that if somebody has an insecure attachment, they are going to be constantly looking for soothing. How do I soothe myself, my needs? And in someone, in the case of an eating disorder, that means is going to be with food. Yes, we all need to be attached to our primary caregiver. And I think the model of a good attachment, a secure attachment, is picture a little four-year-old learning to ride a bike. And they're on their bike and their mother's sitting on the curb and they pick up their hands and they raise their hands in the air and they say, look, mom, no hands. I learned this in a developmental psych course like decades ago. Look, mom, no hands means I can be independent and I also want to be attached to you. I want you to see me. So infants want to be known. They want to be known and cared for. And when that happens, they're free to learn to ride their bike, metaphorically speaking. They're free to crawl away. When they feel like, I never know when my needs are going to be met, they're going to hang around mom or they're going to keep looking for mom in a way that doesn't allow them to develop as they should. I know that we said that food is intertwined with early, early development. And that there might be a genetic predisposition. Are those the reasons why somebody might develop an eating disorder as opposed to, say, something else to soothe their needs? I mean, there there are loads of ways. There are loads of ways. So we don't really know exactly why one person develops an eating disorder, another person becomes a workaholic. We know that work can soothe people. People who are very anxious, they're soothed when they get to their desk and they think, here's this giant list of what I have to accomplish today. Good for me. Right. <laughs> Those <Good> people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we know that an eating disorder can develop when somebody fails to develop ways to regulate themselves. Now, what do we mean by regulate? We mean take care of themselves. So for example, If anybody in the listening audience, everybody wakes up someday, they're having a bad day. Maybe that's a day you want to sit in bed and read a book. Reading can be self-soothing. Maybe Mm -hmm. you want to call a friend. Maybe hearing a friend's voice will be comforting. Maybe you want to take a walk using our bodies in a way that brings us a sense of strength and power and aliveness. So when people, though, are not secure. When an infant is not secure, they generally fail to develop other ways to nourish and nurture themselves. And food, since food is always available, and all people, even people without eating disorders, sometimes will be working on something hard and think, oh, I'm going to get something to eat. And they'll Mm -hmm. find themselves nibbling on nuts. Does that mean you have an eating disorder? No. All people sometimes use food to soothe ourselves. It's only when that's a person's only option. Also, there's another part of this. I mean, because we're talking about food and body image. For some people, the 
the hook is I'm going to be thin. If I'm thin, I'll be loved. So the whole, all of these traits get interwoven. There's a lot of reinforcement for losing weight in our culture. Anybody out there, if anybody loses weight, does anyone ever say to them, you look horrible? No, not unless you're anorexic. So we get a lot of positive reinforcement from losing weight. And also food is very enjoyable. This was our first object that soothed us. When a baby is crying, there are only a few things wrong. Maybe the baby's wet. Maybe they're sleepy. Maybe maybe they need to be rocked. Maybe they need to have food. So being fed is associated with being nourished, nurtured, loved, comforted. It's little wonder that when people grow up, they turn to this. So we think about an old-fashioned, like a, what's his name, Norman Rockwell painting, where a kid falls off their bike and somebody, the parent, brings them in and says, sit on my lap. And what do they give them? Hot chocolate and cookies. <laughs> we use food in non-eating disordered ways to comfort. Yeah. Right. When you go to a wake, when you go to a shiva, you bring food. Food is comforting. So it's only when it's being misused that an eating disorder is something that we're worrying about. I love that distinction. It's also aligned with the quote, good enough, where your relationship with food is never going to be perfect. That's not even the goal. Right. Um, and, and what does perfect even look like? Because comfort is part of our natural and normal relationship with food. So I love that you said that. And right. And somebody is eating too much because their boyfriend broke up with them. Fine. Maybe that's that's their way of doing it. It's just if that becomes the only way, if that mm -hmm. becomes the only way. Yeah. So we're talking about a lot of complexities here about the development of an eating disorder. We're talking about attachment, which, again, has been, I think, oversimplified, in my opinion, by pop culture. And we're talking about the negative effects on development, which ultimately affect how somebody interacts with others and soothes themselves presently. We're talking about the entire relationship with food and how it is it can become metaphorical for needs and, and soothing and all that. So it's like way, way complicated. That's even simplifying the complex nature of this. So I guess the biggest question that let's begin to tackle now is what do I do with all of this? <laughs> like now what? Okay, thanks for the explanation. And I think this is something that I'm guilty of too, where we use the word processing. I'm using air quotes because, oh, you process your past experience process significant relationships, process, you know, insecure attachment, process, process, process. And uh, it's become a, such a vague term. What does it even mean? What do you actually do in therapy and all those questions? Well, I think what, and what I, as a therapist, I'm always thinking about, because when I ask somebody, so when do you think this all began? And sometimes people have a very clear memory. The day after my sweet 16, I went to school and None of the girls were talking to me, and I remember sitting on the bus eating two bags of potato chips. Okay, so we can make a link mm -hmm. between something happened that made this person unhappy, and they were eating two bags of potato chips. And then I will usually, so I will ask them, and then what? What did you do then? Was there anyone you could talk to? Was there anyone? How did you comfort yourself? It's very sad when your best friends stop talking to you. It's very shameful. It's very humiliating. So I once went to um, a workshop where Bessel van der Kolk, the trauma expert, said there were two questions to think of with every person, every session. 
What are your resources and who's your support system? What else? I'm always thinking in the back of my mind, I might not ask this question in this way. What else can you do beside eat two bags of potato chips? I'm hoping this person is going to eventually think I can go home and tell someone. So, for example, I remember I was once running a group and there were two women in the group who had been sexually assaulted in high school. One went home and told her mother and one didn't. Now, that was a beautiful moment where I asked the one who didn't, why didn't you? She said, my mother would have killed me. My mother would have killed me, even though it wasn't my fault. Wow. The person who went home and told her mother said, you can't be positive because there can be so much shame around like any kind of sexual assault. So many times women worry that they really caused it. So what's important is that we start helping somebody link. When did this eating disorder behavior begin? And what else was going on in your mind? Were you sexually assaulted? Were you feeling inadequate? Did you fail a test? And what else can you do when you fail a test other than overeat or undereat? Is there anyone you can talk to? So often people will tell me, no, there's no one I can talk to. I'm dealing with a married woman who's about to have her third child. And she she feels ashamed that she wants to get a nurse in the house to help her. She's ashamed that she she should be able to do it herself. I wonder, where did she get this idea? Would you ask your sister-in-law how she's managing with her five children? Oh, guess how her sister-in-law's managing? She has a great great housekeeper. So for whatever reason, the word that's always important to me is the word isolation. People who are likely to develop eating disorders often are very isolated. They don't have a big network of friends. And that's something that we as therapists can encourage them to foster. So just circling back, part of what's really, really important, especially within the context of attachment and how it affects the development and the maintenance of eating disorders is almost quite simple. If I were to dare say, there's a lot of gathering details. When did it start? What else was going on? Just being inquisitive, investigating, if you will. And potentially, if you can, to start putting the puzzle pieces together, so making sense of it, which I think is a lot easier said than done. But if I'm understanding you correctly, that is going to be, at least in the beginning, the crux of how we make change, how we begin to heal. Yes. Now you used one of my favorite words. It's really the job of the therapist to help the patient become curious about how this happened. I love that word too. I love that word. And it's the job of the therapist to use that word and to say, I'm curious. These girls dropped you. And then how did that wind up being the bag of potato chips? I want my patient to think about that and to begin to think about what else could she have done. So how long has that habit? Then I might say to the person, would you say it's a habit that when things feel badly, you spend a lot of time nibbling on whatever you can get your hands on? And the person might say yes, might say no. I want to get them curious about themselves, how they either got in the habit of overeating or undereating. Because I guess it's worth saying to the listening audience out there, that overeating and undereating are just part of the spectrum mm-hmm. of misusing food to fulfill an emotional need. Two sides of the same coin. 
two sides of the same coin. And it can make us feel very good to eat some extra yummy chocolate. And it can make us feel very good to lose two pounds. There's probably not a woman listening that I said, if you got up tomorrow morning and you weighed two pounds less, how would you feel? And I know what the answer is. Great. (laughs) Yeah. It's just we live in a culture that this is drummed into us. Mm -hmm. And well, we can just mention this. And now with the new guidelines of putting little kids on diets, Mm -hmm. this is a big concern to our community that this is going to provoke eating disorders because most people do not develop eating disorders, even though eating disorders are rampant. There still are a large percentage of people who never develop eating disorders. And it's my belief that going on a diet and making yourself hungry so that you're starving starts to really screw up your whole capacity to regulate yourself and it screws up your metabolism. Yeah. Okay. That was a big, that was a big mouthful, right? Whatever. It was a great tangent, (laughs) but even just going back to what we actually do to heal and again, oversimplifying the process, if you will. But if we're talking to somebody and we're saying, okay, we got to be curious, we got to gather more information, we got to put some pieces together. What if someone were to say, okay, what does that have to do with actually changing anything? My problem is today, not 25 years ago. Uh, What would you say to them? Well, I would say to go back to the person who was dropped by her friends the day after her sweet 16. Now, it may be true that when she was four years old, different things happened, but she doesn't want to deal with that, right? She wants to, Mm -hmm. but I want to get her curious about how the day after her sweet 16, when she found out she had no friends, tell me exactly what happened to you when you got to school, because I want to cause her to re-experience the pain. And I want her to re-experience that painful moment with me so that she can experience what it would be like to have somebody be attuned to her, listen to her, care about her, ask her questions. And as she's telling it in the presence of a caring person, she's actually having a different experience. So let's say someone is very ashamed of crying. And instead of crying, because they learned, as that patient did learn, don't be a crybaby. Don't be mm-hmm. a crybaby. So she's sitting on the bus, and rather than finding a friend who maybe would be comforting, and maybe she would cry, she's eating. And if I can get her to go into that moment, that moment that she was on the bus, and she was holding back the tears, and then I can get her to think, and so how long ago did you learn to hold back the tears? And she might say, I remember being in a restaurant with my parents when we were in New Orleans, and I was crying. And my father said to me, please stop crying. Your mom can't stand tears, and I don't want to ruin our whole meal with crying. And somehow a person can develop the idea that they are not supposed to be weak and crying. And if I start poking around at that and say, well, what was that? And they say, well, why are we talking about that? How does Mm -hmm. that have anything to do with what happened on the bus? I might open up a book that I have and say, you know, one of my favorite authors is William Faulkner. And he has a line in Requiem for a Nun that I love. And that line is, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Mm -hmm. 
And what this means is that we all carry our early experiences with us. What you asked me to kick off this show, Rachel, was why is attachment so important? And I was really trying to say in a lot of different ways, because the template that we develop as an infant is what's going to follow along with us. And if somebody has an insecure attachment and they feel like they can't get the comfort they need, instead of turning to people, they are more likely to turn to food. I want to help my patients understand that they are not bad people because they're doing this. They're doing this because this is what they learned early on. They learned early on, don't cry at our table. Don't cry. We don't want cry babies. A man in his 60s said to me the other day, he said, I learned A minus was not good enough. So whenever I see an A minus, I feel anxious and I feel I have to do better. I have to do better. I have to do better. So people take out their anxieties in different ways. And what we're saying repeatedly is food is soothing. It Mm -hmm. is has soothing properties. And it also can bring us back to a memory of a time that having food with other people was comforting. Like if I was to ask everybody in this audience, think about an event where you were enjoying eating a special cake with others. I bet lots of people out there are thinking about a birthday cake. At least I am. Mm -hmm. So we use food as a bonding mechanism. What's wrong is when that becomes a person's only method of soothing themselves. So even just to go back and to make sure that we really answer the skeptic's question about how this is all relevant, is it's not for the sake of going back in time and and just talking about our past experiences and talking about our trauma and our relationship with our moms and all that. It's for the sake of the present moment, because all that is a template for what we're doing today. So it's not new. Today is just like a repetition. And if we go back to the source, then we can actually get at changing that template. Exactly. So you and I are operating under the assumption that our early relationships form a template in our mind. What's another good word for it? They're they're a model. Mm. Mm -hmm. They're a model, just like if you go near a stove and you burn your hand, next time you go near a hot stove, you're not going to burn your hand. Well, if one got burned in their earliest relationships and they felt like they're not supposed to be a crybaby or A- minus is not good enough, they're going to develop a certain way of being in this world where they don't expect to get a lot of nurturance and support. And nurturance and support are what give us resilience because just like the girl who got dropped by her best friends, life has suffering. Life Mm -hmm. has suffering. We are all going to experience moments where we don't get what we want. And sometimes it's just not fair. And that's just what happened. Sometimes the teacher really gave a test that was impossible. Sometimes a friend betrays you. Sometime a parent is just in a terrible mood, and we're hoping that a child develops enough skills that they can say to themselves, oh, mom's in a bad mood. I think I'll go on my phone and play a game, as opposed to, I think I'll go eat everything in the refrigerator. Mm -hmm. Look, we know that going on your phone can become as bad as 
overeating, you know, having an addiction. Yeah. Playing games on your phone. This is like a new big problem. It's yes. huge. huge. So I guess I'm thinking about a relationship that somebody would develop with their therapist, you know, hopefully uh, to be healing, you know, to rewrite their story. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking about it as, as for some people, a hurdle that almost feels impossible. We're asking for somebody to re-experience something or at the very least to learn how to deal with it differently. And yes, the therapist is a guide, but what happens when there is no language to have that conversation or the person is so not in touch with either the memories or the feelings? How do we do that? How do we push through? Well, a person doesn't have to remember what happened when they were young in order to show the therapist exactly who they are in the office. Mm-hmm. So when the therapist asks a question, like I was trained by a woman that I adored, her name was Diana Fosha, and she said, you know, we're constantly making therapy both comfortable and uncomfortable. And so, for example, when I interrupt a patient, a patient is telling a story. Let's say they're telling a story that I heard before. They've told me the same story or they told me a variation on this story. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to say, you know, I want to interrupt you. And then my next question might not be asking my question. It might be, what's it like when I interrupt you? Because I'm trying to heighten our interaction. I'm trying. They, they're probably, first of all, not expecting I'm going to ask that question. What's it like <laughs> when I interrupt you? And they might like say, you know, I don't know what they're going to say. They might feel very cared for, like I'm really paying attention. I'm mm-hmm. really doing something nice. You told me a lot of this story last week. I don't want to waste your time. I'm going to interrupt you. Or they might feel insulted. They might feel insulted. And whichever way they go, I'm going to, be curious about that. If they feel insulted, I'd say, well, how does it feel if I tell you I really was not trying to insult you? I'm going to help them look at their own processing, to use the word that you said we should really be opening up a little more. Because responding by turning to or away from food, it can easily become a hardwired response inside of someone. And I want people to be curious. Why am I thinking just like, for example, right now, Rachel, it's 1256. If I thought this interview was going horribly, I don't think I would think maybe I'll go have a glass of wine after this. Why not? Because that's just not how I'm wired because I have a whole day planned. I'm not considering having a glass of wine at 1256 in the afternoon. However, lots of people would consider if, if this doesn't go well, I think I'll go down and maybe there's a good candy bar I could find. Mm-hmm. So we want to help people think and we want to help people understand that they are in charge. We are all creatures of habit and we can create new habits. And the habits we have developed for a reason. They developed to soothe us, to comfort us. And we want to teach people to be comforted in, in different ways. And just my last comment. And the therapy relationship can be comforting because hopefully my patient is going to feel like I'm paying attention to them and that's going to feel good. So we're always trying to help people be more self-observant. 
and to put words to their experience. So, for example, sometimes I even quote uh, Mr. Rogers, who said, what's mentionable is is manageable. Mm. And we want to give language to the habits that are going on. People think, ugh, I'm disgusting. I'm throwing up. I'm eating too much. But we think of it as something different. We think they're expressing a need. So here's a great example. So in the book that I just wrote, at one person, I'm dealing with a young woman and her mother had moved out of the house. The parents got divorced. The mother moved out. And I asked her, what can you tell me about your mom? She's the greatest, Jenny said. And she started tapping her foot anxiously. I say, I notice your foot. It's tapping away. I wonder if it has something to tell us. So I'm noticing that she's discharging her anxiety by tapping her foot rather than telling me that having your mother move out when you're 13 years old is actually a little anxiety provoking. Jenny stopped tapping. You didn't need to stop tapping, I said, but your foot is telling us something. And I'm hoping we can find some language for what your foot wants to say. Jenny shrugged. She doesn't know what I'm talking about. So about your foot tapping, I mean, I wonder if your foot might have, if you might have been feeling a little anxious, or I wonder if you stopped tapping because you felt criticized. Did you feel that way? She says, I really am not anxious, but I did feel criticized. Okay, good. I want her to identify a feeling. Right now between us, I said something trying to help her, and she felt criticized. That tells me a lot about her dynamics, that she feels criticized very, very easily. I'm so glad you can tell me that you feel criticized. Then I say to her, talking about your feelings is really what therapy is all about. Sometimes when we're nervous, we tap. And I might even say, sometimes when I'm nervous, I scratch my head. We all have little nervous mannerisms. I wondered if you were nervous about anything. She says, no. Now, I know she has to, her mother moved out. I say, is it okay that I asked you that question? Because I'm constantly trying to build up our relationship. Well, we were talking about your mom, I say, not wanting to lose the opportunity to name what I assumed was an important part of her problem right then, the pain of having her mother move out. She, I assume she must be feeling some level of abandonment and anxiety. Eventually, I'm going to say that, but this is only the second session. I don't want to be too pushy, I said, but I'm just wondering if you felt a little anxious by my question. Sometimes we all need a push. How are you two getting along? Really fine, she says. I took a deep breath. This is just what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Now what? Your dad mentioned that she moved out and lives where? In an apartment? Yeah, it's an apartment near the train station. So she's being very concrete. She wants to be very concrete about mom living in the train station, and I want to find out how she's feeling. So how often do you get to see your mom? So I think that's a little daring. 
on my part, but I want to try to deepen our conversation. She doesn't have much time for me since she moved out. I feel really bad for her, she says. She has to get up so early to commute to New York where she has a big job in a busy advertising office. She comes over to our house for dinner, though, when she can make it. So what's it like not seeing her, I ask. I'm managing, so she's insistent on telling me that she's managing. Last night, I made a brisket, and I'm persistent. So the therapist has to be persistent. I noticed that Jenny had avoided answering my question of how she's feeling, but I'm not going to push on it right then. So what was it like to have brisket for your mother? With your mother, I ask, and I learned that her mother didn't come. Her mother didn't get out of work early, and she had to eat the brisket herself. Oh, we didn't get to have dinner together, Jenny said. So I ate by myself. And how was that, I asked her. And what I'm thinking is here is a girl hungering for connection, and she's eating alone. I'm pitch Jenny, I'm picturing you sitting alone at the table. What was that like? Did you really eat all the brisket? Isn't brisket fatty? I ask her. And then she tells me how she cut all the fat off. And I say, wow, I'm picturing a big pile of fat. So you see, I want to be in her world. I want to worm my way into her world and find out what is it like to make a dinner for your mom, your mom not come have the dinner, and then you cut all the fat off this meat and you hardly eat anything. And I'm going to remember all this. And I'm going to bring it up the next time. How's your dad's girlfriend? I asked. She's great, Jenny said. (laughs) I took a deep breath, feeling defeated. So in the beginning, I'm going to just have to just keep pushing at getting somebody to reflect on their own inner experience. That's what developing an eating disorder does. It squashes squashes the, the ability to reflect, and then usually the patients who have eating disorder just feel ashamed. They feel ashamed, I can't believe I did that, rather than thinking, I wonder why I did that. So that's my goal, that somebody will wonder why they did it. Sometimes what I ask people to do, if you know you're going to binge, what I want you to do, don't stop. You may feel like you can't stop, but take anything you can write on. It could be an envelope, could be a notebook could be a special journal and write down, right now I'm feeling. So you can try to zero in on what is it that's motivating you to grab another bag of potato chips or a sleeve of cookies. Yeah, I love that as in terms of like, again, oversimplifying a goal is that when someone becomes curious about their own experience, they they pivot away from that shame or guilt or whatever they feel. And because this sensation of curiosity is much more neutral, they can have the capacity to develop a lot more compassion for themselves, for people around them, more importantly, for, you know, for themselves. So when we think about therapy and the healing journey, that to me really stands out to pivot away from the shame and turn to the curiosity. And so one way I can help people be curious and eventually develop self-compassion is by asking a lot of questions about how my actions are impacting them, showing them that I'm curious, I'm role modeling. You know, I could say to her the next session, I'm, I was thinking about something. 
you felt criticized when I was just trying to understand you. What was it that I did? Can you remember anything I did that made you feel criticized? Because I want them to just be reflecting. I want them to reflect rather than report. Reporting is I ate this, I ate that, I weigh this, I weigh that. Reflecting is I was thinking about why. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, though, most patients will not be able to deal with a why question because they really don't know. Because they have an overlay of the reason anorexic or bulimic is because I'm too fat. And I'm too fat prevents them from thinking about whatever else could be underneath. Which is also why when people say, well, how long is this going to take? And we say it takes time and it depends is because we're doing a lot of other things besides for changing the specific behavior of one's food. Well, that's the hard thing about, you know, people who go to therapy with an eating disorder on the one hand, they want symptom relief. Like they want to feel like they're doing better, that they're either eating Mm -hmm. less or they're eating more. And on the other hand, people ask, do I have to understand all this in order to get better? (laughs) That's a hard question, right? Yeah. Do I have to understand all this to get better? Um, Generally, I'll say, well, sometimes people, you know, you can change a habit just by making a commitment. If I say, I'm going to go to sleep at 10 o'clock tonight, I can make myself go to sleep at 10 o'clock, but I'm a person who likes to stay up later. And if I don't really think this through why I'm doing it, within a week, I'll be going to sleep at one o'clock in the morning again. Mm -hmm. So it's important to really understand how a habit developed and really understand that it's not a bad habit. It just served a need, but maybe that need isn't here anymore. Mm -hmm. Maybe you did grow up in a family where you couldn't be a crybaby, but maybe now you'll have a best friend. And it'll be good for you when she can call you up crying and it'll be good for you when you can call her up crying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I know that there's so much more to say on this and we can maybe do that at a later date, but I did want to just create a couple minutes to talk about something circling back to the mother daughter part of it that Mm -hmm. I've noticed. I mean, personally and with professionally with so many other people on my patients is that the mother daughter relationship looks one way when you know there's a daughter then she grows into adolescence and maybe adulthood but it shifts dramatically when the daughter also becomes a mom so i guess i I don't even know if i have a question but just if you can talk a little bit to that how it changes and and how it shifts well i think that we live in a culture that not only are women under a lot of stress to develop an unrealistically thin body but parent mother parenting which really still is mainly in the domain of mothers, even though fathers are certainly more involved than they were a generation ago. But mothering, the responsibility generally falls to women in in the parenting, which becomes mothering. Anyway, I think what I want to say here is when very often girls are angry at their mothers because they feel their mothers are modeling powerless behaviors because often their mothers are powerless in the families that they're in that we still live in a culture where men have more power than women that we Mm. learned during the pandemic when one parent had to quit their job it was generally the woman yeah why because the woman made less money money is power men are still earning more money most of the time than women not all the time so women 
really teach their daughters to be powerless. And daughters can be very angry at seeing a mother who has accepted a powerless position. Mm -hmm. And then it's not until that daughter becomes a mother that she understands the way the, the way society shapes all of us. And she also may experience the stress of what it's like to be a mother. So she understands her mother's stress and she's really more compassionate towards her mother than she was before she was standing in her mother's shoes. The way we can have compassion for somebody is when we stand in their shoes. And it's very easy for people to be mad at their mothers. And I wrote a whole book about how I was mad at my mother for a number of things that she did. And it wasn't until I became a parent that I understood how my expectation that my mother would be so perfect was completely unrealistic as I became a mother. And I had children to take care of and I was exhausted. Really, a day never goes by where you don't feel like you made some sort of little mistake or big mistake. Mm -hmm. And I think that helped me become more compassionate to my mother. And I see it over and over again in my practice. Do you? Oh, 100%. I'm also thinking about what we just said before about removing the blame, removing the shame, developing more compassion, more curiosity. That's exactly what we're saying. We're affording our own moms in our journey when we become moms is that while we maybe were angry teenagers for however long we didn't have kids, it's something where we always swear we would never become our mothers. And maybe we became very different from our moms, but there's something about the understanding. Oh, I get it now. And maybe she's not a terrible person. Maybe she did the best that she could. That could be incredibly healing. I'm not saying this for everybody's mom. You know, like that's, there are some people that behave differently, but I think it is so incredibly valuable to look at it through this different perspective. I mean, when children do poorly, mothers are blamed. When children do well, mothers are not necessarily given the credit. (laughs) Would you agree? Oh, 100%. (laughs) So we do, we live in a mother blaming culture. When something is wrong with a person, I wonder what went wrong in that person's childhood. So mothers feel like they're under attack all the time. Mm -hmm. And then when you experience it yourself, you're like, oh, yeah, maybe that's not so true. (laughs) Exactly. And then it can become, you know, not in and of itself. I'm not saying that you heal your relationship with food by becoming a mom. Like that's obviously not what we're saying, but in your journey of healing your own relationship with yourself and your mother is, you know, all the different perspectives that you gain from becoming a mother and, you know, the lens through which you couldn't see anything from before. I mean, I remember I had the mother of um, an anorexic patient in my office And the daughter confronted her mother and she said, mom, I'm not supposed to be not exercising and you're doing like 50 leg lifts a day and you're doing this and you're doing that. And the mother turned to the daughter and me and she said, look, you're 16 and I'm 45 and divorced. I want to get another husband. I have to stay in good shape just because you have anorexia. I'm not going to stop exercising. And the daughter thought that was really awful. I also thought that the mother should not exercise in front of the daughter, but I understood what the mother was saying, that she had her own pressures Mm -hmm. to look in a certain way if she wanted her life to go in a certain way. And that was a reality. She didn't make that up. Yeah. I know. Yeah. 
So really, it's heartbreaking. Mothers carry the culture to their daughters. Yeah. So here's the ode to the mother. Ode to the mother. Yeah. (laughs) On that note, first of all, thank you so much for today and sharing your wisdom and some of your excerpts. This was wonderful. Before I let you go, can you share with our listener where they can find out more about you? Oh, they can find out more about me on my website, Judith Ruske Rabinor, PhD.com. And I run writing workshops now. They can find out about my latest book, The Girl in the Red Boots, Making Peace with My Mother. And they can find out what kind of writing workshops and other things I'm doing just by going on my website. So it's all there. Okay. Thank you, Rachel. It's all there. Yes. Amazing. Thank you. This was fun. I'd be delighted to do it another time, too. This was great. Great. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.